Amen. We sing to a good and a mighty God. Let's get our Bibles and open up to Luke chapter 22. Of course, if you need a Bible, our men will bring one around for you. Uh, they are also passing out note sheets and pencils that hopefully will assist you as we study through this passage together this morning. Uh, there is one announcement um, in addition to what Paul mentioned earlier that I wanted to share with you. Uh, in two weeks from today, we're going to be uh, having a special emphasis in our service for Sanctity of Life Sunday. Uh, we believe that human life is precious to God. Uh, that doesn't mean that certain human lives are precious to God or that useful human lives are precious to God. It means that all human life is precious to God. And that is based off the fact that God has made us in His very image. And so we are specially um, focused on helping those who cannot help themselves and protecting those who are defenseless. And so looking out for those who are the most defenseless, those who are human beings and yet not yet born, is, is something that's really dear to our hearts. We love, uh, we love life and we support um, a pro-life movement. Our uh, dear friends at Options for Women uh, are a ministry that has been doing some great work in our area, reaching out to young ladies and old ladies alike, folks who are professional, folks who are on the streets, folks from all walks of life who have become pregnant, but uh, for one reason or another are not able to handle bringing a child into this world. And, and many of those individuals um, are thinking about abortion. And Options for Women is a great organization that contact, contacts these ladies, speaks with them, counsels them, gives them direction, helps them to see that even though they might not be ready to raise that child, that God will provide uh, a family, a home for those children if they will just uh, allow that child to be born and give it life. And so we are very grateful to be a church that comes alongside an organization like Options for Women. And in two weeks, we're going to be taking up a special offering um, that's going to benefit that ministry. So we want you to think about that ahead of time. It's just something, you know, beyond your normal giving to the church that uh, you might want to participate in. It's completely optional. But uh, if that is a ministry that's dear to your heart as well and something that you'd like to support and give to, uh, then we wanted to give you a heads up on that so you won't be caught off guard. So that's in two weeks. Uh, we'll still be in Luke, but we're also going to take a little bit of time uh, to talk about why the Lord God considers the unborn uh, child to be precious, and uh, we should too. Um, got a lot of things going on. I hope we don't confuse you with all the extra stuff we have happening with all these membership meetings and, and annual business meetings and things. If you need more information about what we have coming up, always refer to your church bulletin or to the website. They'll give you accurate and up-to-date information so that you're never out of the loop. Well, I know I'm not the only one who watches movies around here, and there's been more than a few movies that I've watched where there was somebody who committed a great crime or was accused of a great crime to such a degree that they were on death row. And I, I know in the movies, they always depict those last moments of that person's life. There's always this interesting little ritual where that person's giving the opportunity to have a final meal, a last, a last chance to eat their favorite food. They get to tell the guards what they want, and they, to a reasonable degree, they'll go to great lengths to get that person the meal that they desire uh, as one last final hurrah, a last chance to have it their way, uh, to revel in the satisfaction of the senses before their candle is extinguished, before they are put to death for the crimes that they have committed. Uh, it must be harrowing to know that you're going to die at a certain time on a certain day. I'm glad that the Lord does not reveal that to us. I'm glad I get to walk through each day with hope and not knowing if it's going to be my last. Um, hopefully, my understanding of mortality will not make me take that for granted. But I imagine it must come with great anxiety to know that your day has an end and to know exactly when that's going to happen. We are in chapter 22 of, of Luke this morning, and Jesus is nearing his end. Unlike you and I, Jesus knows the day, he knows the very hour that will be his last upon this earth. And yet as Jesus gathers together today in the passage we're going to study in Luke 22, he is with his disciples in a private room the night before he goes to the cross. This is his final meal that he's going to enjoy on the earth, but he does not see it as his last chance to satisfy his appetite. He's not concerned with fulfilling his desires because Jesus is not running from his death. You and I might run from our death if we had an idea that it was coming up, but Jesus isn't doing that. We don't see him fighting tooth and nail to try to prolong his material existence. Nor is Jesus intent on making sure that his final moments on this planet are spent soaking in the pleasures of life that he enjoyed the most. He doesn't really care about that. Instead, Jesus viewed his last meal 
as an opportunity to prepare his 12 disciples, these friends that he has made, these men that he has trained to carry on the truth of the gospel. And by preparing them, we have those very words, he's preparing us as well, his disciples, the church, so that we might never forget the power and the magnitude of what he was about to accomplish for us on the cross at Calvary. Jesus does that by taking a pre-existing ritual called the Passover Seder. This was fundamental to Jewish worship, and each one of these men was very familiar with it, could probably recite it by heart. But he takes that traditional ritual and he transforms it so that it will better, better represent the truth that it always had pointed towards anyway. In doing so, Jesus is going to give them what we have come to call communion, or the Lord's Supper, as a practice that still anchors the faith of believers to the gift that Jesus Christ gave to us on the cross. And God's providence has lined it up in such a way that uh, it would just so happen that today would be the day we would take communion, and we're also going to be preaching about it. So hopefully it will have a special unity today as we, we consider these things together. Verse, 20, or verse 7 through 20 of Luke chapter 22 is our emphasis. I will read it aloud as you follow along. Um, and we will no doubt be benefited from this passage of Scripture this morning. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare a Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found out just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So let's take a moment to establish a timeline so we can kind of get our feet on the ground and realize where we're at in the grander scope of the passion of Jesus. It is Thursday, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Remember, this is a seven-day feast that is kicked off with this special Passover meal. On this day, a lamb or a goat had to be sacrificed by each family. And in Jerusalem in particular, they would bring that goat forward and sacrifice the lamb or the goat in the temple. They would offer a portion of that uh, animal between the hours of three and sundown. And then they would take another portion of that animal back to their homes to be prepared and eaten during the Passover meal. Now to understand the sacrament of communion that Jesus is going to describe to us shortly, it helps to have a basic understanding of the Passover Seder. So I want to describe that holiday to you a little bit. The Passover commemorates one of the most defining events in the history of the Jewish people. A little more than 1,500 years before Jesus walked the earth, God rescued Israel from a very difficult position. They had fallen into slavery. They had been conquered by the people of Egypt. And for almost 400 years, they had been indentured servants to this powerful nation on earth. Now Moses was a Jewish man, but he had left Egypt. So a lot of backstory there. You can check it out in the book of Exodus if you like. But Moses was in the wilderness tending to a flock of sheep. He was a shepherd. When God interrupted his day by giving him the vision of a burning bush. This bush was on fire, but it was not being consumed. And so Moses approached this spectacle to see what was happening. And from that bush, the voice of God emanated out, giving Moses some specific instructions. God teaches Moses that he is to go into Egypt, the place that he has freed himself from, that he is to go back into that place, that he is to demand to Pharaoh, one of the most powerful men in the world at that time, that he is to let the people of God go free. Moses is a little tentative, a little scared about this mission that he's been put upon, but God assures him that by his own power, by God's power, it will be accomplished, and Moses obeys. He goes to Egypt and tells God's message to the Pharaoh who essentially laughs in his face and rejects him and refuses to let go of these indentured servants which are a great asset to the nation of Egypt. And so God, through Moses, begins to bring a series of plagues, of supernatural afflictions upon the Egyptian people. 
and they are burdened by them. Each of those plagues confronts one of the many gods that the Egyptians worship that are false gods. Eventually, the Pharaoh, who is very stubborn and hard of heart, uh, cannot take it any longer. The tenth plague is very, very severe, and so he allows the, uh, the Israelite people to leave. Moses is happy to take them out of the clutches of the Egyptians, and God gives him the power to part the Red Sea in a miraculous way so that God's people can escape from Egypt and from uh, the Egyptians who soon regretted their decision and began to pursue them with their armies. So God provided. After he secured freedom for them, God established a covenant with the Israelite people. We call it the Mosaic Covenant. It was a covenant that included requirements for these Israelites. They were to live according to a law that God would give them. They were to be a people set apart for God's glory. And God would be their protector, their provider, their king. And so a new chapter of service to God had begun in the nation of Israel. To mark that exodus, that exit out of Egypt and out of slavery, Israelite families from that time forward would once a year prepare a very special meal. That meal contained several symbolic elements that reminded them of the specific details of their exit from the hand of the Pharaoh. During this meal, uh, there were four different cups of wine that would be sipped from from everybody in the family. They would pass it around and partake of the cups of the wine. And those cups of wine represented the joy and the celebration that the people felt from being released of their bondage. The blood, that, uh, of, an un, uh, the blood of an unblemished lamb would be spread upon the door sills of their homes during this time of festivity. Uh, that pointed back to the final plague in Egypt where the blood of a sacrificed lamb would identify to the angel of God that this house trusted in Yahweh. The angel of death would pass over them without bringing judgment upon them and they would be spared. But the Egyptians who did not worship God uh, were punished in that final plague which precipitated the, the uh, release of the Jewish people. So they would sacrifice a lamb or a goat. They would put a little blood on their door sill to remind them of that great mercy that God showed to them. And then they would eat that lamb together as a family. They also had bitter herbs that represented uh, the, the, the anguish of their heart as they had to walk through the wilderness because of their disobedience. And, and they would dip those bitter herbs in salty water, which was representative of the tears of the people, not only from their afflictions under the Egyptian rule, but also because of their poor decisions that they made and the way that they dishonored God in the wilderness time. So this festivity, this, this meal is, is chock full of symbolic imagery that points these Jewish people back to the heritage that God had established for them. So when the Hebrews eat, ate of this meal, they, they, it reminded them of God's incredible mercy for them, that he was willing to provide for them, not only escape from oppression, but that he would give them a new covenant, that he would make them a people unto himself. It reminded them of God's power, that no one can oppose him. Not even the Pharaoh, one of the mightiest men in the world, men in the world, could do anything to stop God's plan of freeing his people. It helped them to identify as a people of promise. It helped them to understand who they really were and why God had chosen them out of all the nations of the earth so that they might be assigned to the people around them and point them to God. Now, given the complexity of the meal, there was a significant amount of work that went into preparing for it. Jesus assigns two of his disciples, Peter and John, who were probably the two most uh, men who were closest to him out of anyone in the world at that time. He assigns them the task of handling preparation for this meal. But he tells them very, very little about the details of what they're supposed to do. Did that ever strike you as strange? Why is Jesus so secretive about where they're going to be observing the Passover? He doesn't tell his disciples, you know, go back into town. And you remember Joseph that we were talking to last week? Go up to him and let him know that we do want to use his upper room for the Passover and we'll be there from the hours of 3 to 7. Go ahead and let him know and then you can start preparing things. He didn't say that. Instead, Jesus says, go into the city and you're going to see a man carrying a jar of water. That might seem kind of obscure to us, but in the Hebrew tradition, usually women would carry a jar of water, sometimes on their head. Men would often carry a... a um, a skin full of water. So to see a man carrying a jar would, would have kind of stood out a little bit. So he would recognize the person he was supposed to see. And then he says, follow that man into the house when he enters into a home. Ask for the master of the house 
And when that master comes to you, don't tell him my name. Don't say Jesus sent you. Instead, say the teacher sent you. All right, and, and then tell him that, that he needs the guest room that was prepared for him uh, so that the disciples and he might join together. So he's, he's using like subterfuge here. It's very kind of secretive and he's saying very little to these men. Why the secrecy? Why the mystery? Because Jesus is a good shepherd. And a good shepherd knows to be cautious when he's in country where wolves live. There is, in fact, a wolf among even his own flock right now. Judas Iscariot, whom we talked about last week, was looking for an opportunity to get Jesus apart from the crowds. The high priests had paid him a sum of 30 silver pieces so that when Jesus was alone, he might alert the guards, they might come and arrest him without a riot breaking out. So Jesus knew this. He was aware of the threat of Judas' betrayal. He also knew that it was imminent. It was something that needed to happen. It would come to pass, but it was not yet quite the hour. Jesus could not allow Judas to turn him in before Jesus was able to accomplish something very important. He still needed to prepare his disciples for his departure, and he needed to give us something very critical. He needed to give us the Lord's Supper as a perpetual means of encouragement and hope until he returned. I want you to think about this for a minute. If Judas had known about that upper room and had known about the timing of it, it's very likely that they would have went to that upper room and there would have been a battalion of soldiers just waiting for them. They would have been taken into custody and consider all of the rich and important information that scripture holds from John chapter 13 to John chapter 18 that we would not have anymore. Those chapters describe the very, very important discourse that Jesus had with his disciples as they prepared and experienced this new Passover meal together. If Judas had stepped in and ruined that, then Jesus would have never washed the disciples' feet. What an important act that he did to show us that though he is a king over us, though he has all authority in heaven and earth, that he was willing to humble himself and take on a lowly task to show his great love for these men that he had trained and walked with and shared life with for the last three years. We wouldn't have that washing of the disciples' feet. We would not have heard Jesus proclaim that I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. So the exclusivity, of, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, the fact that only he can save, and there are not five or ten or an infinite number of ways to God, but there is only one way through Jesus Christ, that would not be as clear to us if we did not have that in Scripture. We wouldn't have the beautiful image that Jesus described of himself being the vine, and that we are like his branches that must abide in him so that the nourishing nutrients of, of vitamins and minerals that come up from the soil can, can give us life, that we can depend on Him so that He can not only keep us alive, but He can make us fruitful, that we, as we abide in Him, might bear fruit to the glory of God. We wouldn't have that image if Judas had stepped in and ruined it. And the high priestly prayer of John 17, which is such an encouragement to us, where Jesus humbly bows in the presence of His friends and He prays for them and he prays for you, every believer that would come after him. He prays that God would give them strength to understand that they are not a part of this world. That just as Jesus doesn't belong in this world, so too do his followers no longer belong in this world. He prayed that God would sanctify them by his truth and strengthen them for what they were about to experience. None of that would have reached the ears of the disciples had Jesus not been so careful. Nor would it have graced the pages of scripture for us to read and be comforted by. And of course, there would have been no Last Supper. The ordinance that we're about to experience in just a few moments, we would have never received that from Jesus Christ. But thankfully, friends, that's not, that's not how God's world works. The world may seem radically out of control to you and to me, but it doesn't seem that way at all to God, who made it and sovereignly rules over it. So while we see this as a very near miss, Jesus' ministry doesn't see it that way. It was not a harrowing ordeal for Christ to walk through his life and to approach the end of his days here on earth. He didn't have to wonder at every turn if things were going to work out the way that they were supposed to work out. 
In fact, we see remarkably an otherworldly calm in Jesus. We see this, this sense of peace in him as he walks through these final days of his life. He's not desperate. He's not scrambling. He's not panicking. He's not wondering if it's all going to work out. In Jesus, we see somebody who is set on the will of the Father and he has great confidence that it will come to pass. Jesus is God's son. He is eternal. He has always existed and he is all-knowing, omniscient. So he understood that Judas would betray him. He also understood that he would do it at exactly the right hour. John and Peter comply and the arrangements are made for this special meal to take place. And then we get to verse 14 of Luke 22. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles were with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. The place that Jesus had prepared for them was a large upper room. It was heavily furnished. It was ready to be used. And if you consider that Jerusalem was the, ep the epicenter of Jewish religious activity, it's not surprising that the Jews who lived in the city might build an extra room in their house so that they could accommodate some of their Jewish brethren who would come into the city from time to time to participate in these festivals or to participate in worship or to just come simply to offer sacrifice. So many local Jews had an extra room like this that they would set aside for their countrymen and they would offer, offer, they would offer them up for uh, their fellow Jews to, to use during times like this, feast days like this. When we envision the last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples, many probably have a visual kind of like this in mind. This is Leonardo da Vinci's um, uh, Last Supper. And it was painted in the 15th century. And it was painted as if the Last Supper had actually happened in the 15th century. So 15,000 or 1,500 years after the time of Jesus, people were sitting at tables and eating in the manner that you see right here. But a Jewish person in the time of Jesus probably would not have chosen this kind of a setup for any Jewish festival uh, that was designed to help them worship their God. The Jewish people ate differently at that time. They probably celebrated the Passover at a very low table, maybe a foot or so off the ground. They reclined on their left side. All the food was in the central area. The table would probably be in a circle or a semicircle arrangement. And the people would be sc scattered in kind of like a spoke configuration, emanating out from the, the center of a wheel so that everyone's heads would be close together and the food would all be there on that table close together, but their bodies would be lined out. And you see a picture here that might better represent the kind of scene you would have saw if you would have came into that upper room with Jesus and the Twelve. So they are preparing to eat this meal together. And as they take of this meal, Jesus begins to translate the Passover Seder into a new sacrament, into a new ritual that has significance that the people of God are to, from that day forward, participate in. And he redefines particularly two elements of the Seder to have new and special meaning. Verse 19 again, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. The unleavened bread will now represent the body of Jesus Christ, who lived for God and died for sinners. Whenever they would eat at the Lord's table from that day forward, they wouldn't think of the haste with which they had to leave uh, Egypt in the prior time of the Exodus. They would think of the body of Jesus Christ. The bread they were supposed to use in this practice and the bread that we're going to use today was unleavened bread. It had no yeast in it. That's what makes it flat, almost like a pita type of bread. And there's important reasons for that. In the symbolism of the Passover, this element had formerly represented the haste with which the Israelites had to leave their homes. 
They exited Egypt for a new land that they did not yet know, but they had to do it quickly. God knew that Egypt was going to change his mind and try to pursue them. So they didn't have time to put yeast in their dough and then let the loaves cook for a long time so that they could rise slowly and they would have a nice fluffy loaf of bread. Instead, they had to put the dough in without the yeast and they had to cook it quickly so that they would have something to eat on their way out of Egypt. Yeast has an interesting effect on dough. If you've spent much time in the kitchen, you're probably totally familiar with this. It is catalytic in nature. Now, I understand it is not scientifically a catalyst itself. It is a living organism. Yeast, even in a dry form, if you've got it in a, in a can in your, in your cupboard, it is alive. There are tiny microorganisms in that yeast that when you put them into the dough, they begin to eat and they begin to produce a type of gas that makes the bread literally inflate. That's why your bread is rising. The structure of the bread remains intact because it is happening throughout the structure of the bread. So all these tiny little pockets of air swell up. If you've ever bitten into a piece of, uh, of sourdough bread and you've seen a big hole, you see that yeast affects different types of, of dough differently, um, would cause the bread to, to rise and become fluffy. And it only takes a little bit of that yeast to work. Once you add a little yeast to a lump of dough, it makes its way through the whole lump. It's going to begin to have its impact and it will chain react throughout the loaf so that it affects every aspect of that bread. Now, the Israelites, observing this fact, began to see yeast as a metaphor for sin and the way that sin affects human beings. When we allow sin to have a place in our life and when we allow sin to have place in our communities and our gatherings of people, it doesn't just stay isolated. It begins to impact and the effects of that sin will spread from person to person until either directly or indirectly it's affecting everyone. Therefore, yeast came to symbolize sin. So the bread that was used during the Passover Seder and the bread that we use for the, uh, the Lord's Supper is unleavened to show purity and holiness. This bread is unblemished by the effects of sin. The unleavened bread now comes to represent the purity of Jesus as we see it as representative of his body that was lived for us, his life that never once offended God, his life that always did exactly the will of the Father. It was communicated to him and he obeyed. And so this physical body of Jesus was soon to be broken. Within 24 hours, Jesus would be beaten. He would be scourged and whipped across his back. A grisly crown of thorns would be mockingly shoved upon his skull, digging into his, his brow. He would be forced to carry a large, heavy plank of wood up the hill of Calvary to his place of dying, where the Roman soldiers there would hammer large metal stakes, large iron stakes, through his wrists and through his feet. They would raise him up into the air, and they would make him die a criminal's death for sins that he never committed. So from that point forward, when they broke that bread and blessed it together, when they ate it as part of this special meal that we called the Lord's Supper, they were to think back not to a goat or to a lamb. They were to remember the, that Jesus Christ himself was the unblemished one, the one who was without sin and therefore qualified to give his life on the behalf of others. Verse 20 says, And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus has changed the metaphor of the bread and now he is adjusting their understanding of what the cup means. It does not just mean celebration and joy. It represents something a little more serious now. It represents the blood of Jesus Christ, which was spilled for sinners to wash away our sin. For 1,500 years, the wine that was included in the Passover meal represented celebration. Once again, the Jewish people would be able to forge their own identity and live without oppression. Their slave master had been defeated by God. But Jesus was going to defeat a much more serious slave master. Jesus came to shed his blood so our slavery to our sin would once and for all be put to an end. There was a new type of exodus that God had in mind. He was going to remove us from the, 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 the chains that bind us to our own wickedness. That brings an even deeper significance to this practice of drinking of the wine or the fruit of the cup together. As believers drank of this, this juice, they rejoice in a greater freedom in giving, him, 
in, uh, in, in a greater freedom because Jesus was willing to give himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. By allowing his own blood to be shed for the remission of sin, Jesus set his people free from the oppression of sin. Now everyone owes two debts to God, friend. We were made by him. He is our creator. And if you look around the earth, there is nothing here that is not kept in existence by the will and the grace of God the Father. So we all owe him a debt we can never repay to him because he has given us everything that we know, everything that we are, everything that we enjoy is a blessing from the Lord God. So we owe him a debt of gratitude. We owe him a debt of worship. We should praise him rightly for being the generator of all the good that we see around us. But every human being has failed to give God that gratitude that he deserves. Instead of honoring him, we have brought shame upon ourselves by breaking his laws and by treating him as if he has no authority over us, as if we had created ourselves or as if we were keeping ourselves alive. We pretend like he's not even there. We have committed sin against our God and by doing that, we have earned another debt to him. The first debt was a debt of gratitude. The second debt is a debt of death. Because we have disgraced the giver of life, he has every right to remove life from us. We owe him our lives as a result of our sin. And we're not just talking about heinous sins like murder and extortion and treason. We're talking about every single sin a human being could commit is enough to let the giver of life say, you don't deserve to have the life that I have given to you any longer. We are all sinful and fallen short of glory of God. So we owe these two debts. We deserve to have what <clears throat> we deserve to have the, the suffering that Jesus would face in less than a day after this meal. The Passover cup was originally filled with wine. And we have modified that a little bit. We use grape juice that is unfermented uh, because we respect that some who have struggled with addiction to alcohol might feel uh, temptation in taking the wine. So we use an unfermented grape juice. And to be honest, there is a, a little bit of a loss in the imagery there. Because when you taste wine, it's not sweet like juice. It's bitter to the taste. Now, some people like the flavor, but at the same time, there's a bitterness to it. And when they would drink of that bitter cup, they would remember that, that Jesus gave his own life to wash us free of the debt that we owed, that we would have had to pay forever for him. So there's a bittersweet component to this. We are grateful and we rejoice in it, but the bitterness also reminds us that someone who loved us better than anyone has ever loved us had to die and suffer on our behalf so that we could be set free from our sin. The King of Kings did more than just wash our feet like he washed his followers' feet. He was willing to wash our very souls by cleansing us with the power of his blood, by dying on the cross and allowing his blood to be shed for our sins, Jesus fulfilled the debt that we owed to our maker. This is what we call true atonement. He died in our place and paid our debt in full. If he had not done that, we would still owe a debt to the Lord God. If we would not have trusted in Jesus, we would still be liable for that debt ourselves. But praise the Lord God, he offered himself as our substitute. And in doing so, that verse we just read tells us that we enter into a new covenant in his blood. Now, because of time restraints, we're going to have to come back to that concept of the new covenant in a few weeks. But keep that in mind, that we are now a part of a new covenant. Just as Moses and the Israelites were brought into a covenant when they came out of Egypt, the, the covenant of Moses, the covenant of the law, so too do we, by grace now, enter into covenant with the Lord God. Now, it's important for us to realize as we think about these two elements that are so symbolic, that represent so much, that they are to be understood in a representative nature. When Jesus tells us to take them, he says, do this in remembrance of me. He is helping us to understand what communion is supposed to accomplish and what is really happening when communion is taken. We bring these elements into our mouths, we bring them into our bodies as a memorial of what Jesus did to transform us from sinners to forgiven sons and daughters that belong in his kingdom now. But historically, there's been a lot of debate about these two elements that sit at the table before me, sometimes even violent debate. And it all rotates around the answer to one simple question. How literally should we take the words of Jesus as he says to us, this is my body 
this is my blood. Some traditions, most famously the, the Roman Catholic Church, have historically taken the stance that Jesus is speaking literally in this moment. That in some mystical way that we don't quite understand, when the bread and the wine are blessed and are used in the communion sacrament, they become transformed into something different. They believe that those who eat of the bread and drink of the juice are literally eating of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And there's a name for this doctrine, it's a really long name, transubstantiation, which is basically a fancy way of saying that something stops being what it was and becomes something new. Now, uh, the Catholic theologians that I have read say that the actual br bread, if you were to go and test it in a laboratory, would remain bread. But it has become something essentially different now. It has become God's body. And likewise with the juice, that if you, you tested it in a lab, put it under a microscope, it would still be juice, but for all intents and purposes, the essence of that juice has become the blood of Jesus Christ. And I believe this is a gross misinterpretation of Scripture. In general, when we study the Word of God, friends, it is a good principle to read it as literally as we possibly can. We don't want to think of this book as a bunch of nice stories that we can interpret however we like. But there are times when God uses people and uses figurative language to express ideas in ways that the literal just doesn't communicate as beautifully. This is just one of those occasions. Because the literal body of Jesus was standing right in the room in front of them, it does not make sense for them to interpret the bread and the juice as being his literal body. He still had a literal body. Jesus had not yet shed his blood on the cross. So for him to say, this is my body and this is my blood, it just makes logical sense that he is speaking in a figurative way. There's another passage of scripture that will help us understand what I'm talking about here. If you go to Ephesians chapter 6, you don't have to turn there right now. The Apostle Paul is talking to the church in Ephesus about how important spiritual warfare is. He's teaching them that we don't battle against flesh and blood. We don't need to fear cannons and arrows and, and swords. What we really need to be concerned about is the principalities and the powers that rule over this world at current. That means the wickedness that has some degree of freedom in the current age that we live in. So we need to protect ourselves from deception, from spiritual influence, from wickedness that would oppress us, that would confuse us, that would work its way in between us and the Father. And he tells us that one of the ways that we do that is by putting on a special type of armor. You remember reading about that? The armor of God. He says that there is a breastplate called righteousness that we are to wear, and there is a helmet of salvation, that we are to gird our waists with the belt of truth, and that we are to shod our feet with the sandals that represent the gospel of, of peace that we're to take up the, shore, uh, the shield of faith and the sword of the truth. And by doing so, we are able to defend ourselves against the enemy. Now, when you read that passage of scripture, I imagine you don't think immediately, I wonder where they're keeping this armor. I wonder where this relic is being kept and when can I wear it? How, how much do I have to wear this armor in order to be defended from these spiritual powers? You're not thinking that way. It doesn't make sense to think that way. God is using figurative language to help us understand a concept. And by talking about armor, he's helping us to think about how important it is, how critical it is to our physical and spiritual health, right? He's making a metaphor expand our understanding of a literal thing. Just so is he talking about the bread and the juice in a metaphorical sense to help us understand that when Jesus gives his body and his blood for us, that act of love, that gift of grace is what will nourish us from this point forward. It is what we must live on. We must trust in that. We must move forward with that power that God has given because it is the thing that ignites us and nourishes us and gives us strength. We also can, can reject this idea of transubstantiation because Jesus, if you read the scripture, it, makes it fairly clear that he literally took of these elements himself. In verse 15, he says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. In verse 16, he says, I won't eat it again until I return. He's saying that this is the last time I'm drinking of this cup. So if Jesus is eating of the bread and he's drinking of the wine, that would 
not make sense that he's eating of his own body and his own flesh. That would just make the, the metaphor very strange, wouldn't it? Thirdly, Jesus specifically instructs them to do this in remembrance of him. So he's trying to help us to understand what this is to accomplish. It is to put our minds and our hearts back on that important juncture in time when Jesus, the God-man, went up the hill, was persecuted by the Roman army, was put to death while people shouted at him and insulted him, and he willingly took all of that upon his shoulders for our good. As most wrong doctrine um, comes to life, this springs from a, another wrong doctrine. When we think wrongly in one area, it tends to affect how we think in a different area. So if your doctrine of salvation is off kilter, then it can lead to this idea of transubstantiation and it can back up the idea that the bread and the wine or the juice are literally the body and blood of Jesus. You see, um, many churches teach that in order to be saved, you have to trust in the grace of Jesus, but you also have to perform good deeds to a degree that you are worthy of the death of Jesus. So Jesus died on the cross and washed away your sins, but if you don't walk in the truth and do everything the way you're supposed to do, then you must ask for forgiveness, repent again, and then God has to literally wash you from your sins again. So when the Catholic Mass is taken, they believe that this is Jesus offering himself up again for our sins that we have committed. Because since we got saved, we've probably done something wrong. And so now this is the blood, the blood and the body of Jesus to wash us free of our sins again. Friends, that is a, a misunderstanding of truth. Jesus died on the cross to pay the entire debt that we could not pay at all ourselves. And he receives all the glory for it. Should we respond to that in loving obedience? Absolutely. Should we battle sin and try to remove it from our lives? Yes, yes, yes. But when Jesus died on the cross, he said it is finished. He didn't say it's finished until next Sunday. He said it's finished. And so listen to these scriptures I want to read to you. Romans 6, chapter 6, verse 10. It says, For the death that he, Jesus, died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. When did Jesus die? He died once, and he died for all of our sin. He doesn't have to give himself over and over again because the power of the cross covers the sins we have committed in the past. It covers our sinful hearts right now, and it covers every fault that we will display in our sin throughout the future until we are glorified and we spend time with him. Hebrews 9, chapter 25 through 28 says, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. What is that talking about there? It's pointing back to the fact that the high priest would once a year bring a sacrifice into the holiest of holies on behalf of the nation of Israel. And he had to do it every year because every year the nation of Israel would stray and make a mistake and then he'd have to go back and offer a sacrifice again. And doing so, he was proving, God was proving to us that those sacrifices are not sufficient. They're not enough. Verse 26 of Hebrews 9, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it, appointed, as it is appointed once for man to die, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The cleansing is done. We are washed clean by the blood. Amen. Jesus' sacrifice never needs to be repeated again. What needs to be repeated is our remembrance in rejoicing in that sacrifice. We need to repeat our joy as we remember once again the great cost that Jesus was willing to pay to redeem us from our sinfulness. So the bread we eat in a few moments, it's bread. And the juice that we consume in just a few moments, it's juice. But that does not mean that the presence of Jesus is not here in a very significant way. You know, Jesus is God, so he is everywhere at all times. So Jesus is wherever you're at. But when we obey his word and we come before these elements and he puts our minds and our hearts and fixes them on the truth of his cross, then we can experience that presence in a very graceful and beautiful way. There are so many blessings that we receive when we take of the Lord's Supper.
above and beyond simply remembering what he did. The Lord's table is not just a ritual. It's not just some academic lesson that we take into our minds and file away for later. When we partake of these elements and we concentrate on the beautiful truths that they represent, we see the sacrifice of Jesus and we see his love poured out for us. Our sin can now be grieved more rightly, more accurately. Because when I sin and I'm not thinking about Jesus, my sin seems like a small thing. But when I come to the table and I remember that he died for me, that he hurt for me, that he was willing to be separated for the Father for a moment for me, then my sin becomes very serious. And that little sin I just wanted to brush under the table, now I see my need for forgiveness and I begin to handle my sin more seriously. When we don't take the Lord's table, we tend to become very nonchalant and cavalier about our sins. Not only that, but gratify our our, our, our Our gratitude carries more weight when we come to the table and we realize just how much Jesus paid to make us his. We can praise him with with wider hearts knowing that he was willing to go to such great lengths to to procure our, our place in his family. He loves us with such a passionate love that now we can be grateful with even greater hearts towards him. And when we come to the table, it, it fuels our thankfulness to our God. There's also a future element to partaking of, of these uh, this bread and this juice. When we partake of them, it points forward to his return. Remember, we're to, we're, we're to partake of these elements until he comes back. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we have one eye on the past, looking back to what the Lord has done, one eye on the present, grateful for what he's doing in our lives right now, but we also look forward to the promise that will be fulfilled, that he is coming back for his church, and the hardships of this world will one day be put to a final end. He will receive his faithful people up to him. He will bring them into the new heaven and the new earth, and we will be united for him, uh, with him forever. As I dwell on his atoning sacrifice, I rejoice, I grieve my sin, I look forward to his return, and I also am able to see that I have no part in my own salvation. I am reminded that I didn't come here today to be tested for my holiness. That's not what the table is. The Lord's table is not a test to see if you did all the right things this week. And if you did, you can take the bread and you can take the juice. No, the table reminds me that I was not able to save myself. And nor was any other human being who's ever lifted with one exception. Jesus Christ came and lived perfectly. And it's only because of his gracious gift that I can stand before him today, not as an enemy, but as an embraced prodigal son. He has brought me back close to him. He loves me because of his work, not because of my own. So think of the burden that can be shut up shoved off of your shoulders if you come in here with the wrong idea that that God will only love you if you do the right things. That's a lie from the enemy. The Lord loves you while you were yet a sinner. While you are still sinful, God loves you. His powerful gift of grace overcomes your failures. And so let the table relieve you of that strain of thinking that you need to earn God's love this week, that you need to perform up to His standards. You cannot But may may the joy that you receive in knowing that he loves you anyway and has blessed you with a transformational salvation, may that inspire you to desire a greater holiness moving forward, that you would want to confront your sins, that you would want to be the kind of man that Christ was, the kind of woman that Christ would have you be. Now, does a Christian receive a benefit from communion that he cannot receive anywhere else? Now, I won't go so far as to say that if you don't take communion, you're not saved. But I will go so far as to say that if you are saved, you ought to be taking communion. And if you are not participating in this special means of blessing that God has set aside from you, then you're not experiencing the joy that he has in store for his people. In so much as he is, as a person is disobeying the command of the Savior by ignoring the Lord's table, there is a blessing that they will not know. There is a closeness to Christ that they will not experience until they repent and get right with the Lord and be close to Him. We need to end with a little bit of a, of a critical note here. This is important for us to understand. This is a serious experience. No one is to take of these elements in an unworthy manner. 
the scripture warns us that there are some who take the table lightly and become really just like routine about it. And they come and they take the elements, they're not thinking about it. And to do so is dangerous. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 through 28 is on the screen for you. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What this means, friends, is that anyone who is not a true believer in Jesus Christ should not partake of these elements today. Now, if you are here and you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ yet, thank you for coming. We're very grateful to have you with us. We hope that you'll come back because we desire to let this message of hope be a message to you that might even change your heart, might bring you to a trusting faith in Jesus Christ. But if you are not yet a believer, if you have not given yourself over to the Lord, then we would ask you to just let these elements pass because they truly only belong uh, to a person who has given their life to Christ, who has confessed their sin to the Lord and said, God, I want you to be my king I want you to have control of every aspect of who I am. I am grateful for your sacrifice. I am trusting only you for my salvation. It also means that anyone who calls themselves a believer but is living in, in abject sin and is not repentant about it, they want to be sinful, they understand the scripture says it's wrong, but they're just going to roll the dice and see how it works. You know, if, if you're living in sin and you don't feel grieved about it, if you're not repentant and trusting in Jesus Christ to overcome it, then the table is not for you today. Just be an observer. Just watch as the elements go past. Because the scripture says it's serious. If you take these things and you're not taking the Lord seriously, then it could do you harm. You could, you could, you could seriously bring chastisement and correction upon yourself if you're not taking these elements uh, for the right reasons. It doesn't mean that if you've sinned this week, you can't take the table. In fact, every one of us has. I can, let me tell your fortune right now. Have you sinned this week? Yes. This morning as well. I've, I've sinned today. I'm sure of it. So taking the elements is not a litmus test for your holiness. But if your heart is repentant and you are trusting in God to overcome that sin, then this is for you. If you are stubborn and you want to do what you want to do and you're not going to listen to God, then just let the elements pass today. And finally, anyone who's taken the elements just in a, flippant and disrespectful manner. They are mindless about it. It is just a routine for them. They haven't thought about it. They're not praying about it. Then it would be better for them just to hold off and just watch as things go by until their heart can get into a more focused state of mind. We don't want any harm to come because of the table. It should be a blessing to us. You know, just as in church discipline, sometimes separation from the fellowship of believers has the powerful impact on somebody who's straight away to make them desire to come back and desire to be in fellowship again and to repent and to get right with the Lord. So too does watching those elements go by and not being able to participate stir up our heart to make us think, I need to be more serious about my walk with the Lord. I need to determine today if I truly follow Him or not. Of course, when those 12 men were gathered together in that upper room, there was one among them who did not have any business taking of the bread or the juice, and he took it anyway. His name was Judas Iscariot. He had 30 pieces of silver burning a hole in his pocket, and he was ready to turn in someone who had been a dear, dear friend to him. We will speak more about him next week, but if, if you're unwilling to repent of your sin today and trust in Jesus, please simply observe what those who have trusted in Jesus are about to experience together.